Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a world, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Fresh new stuff. MJ Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fram Lewis, and this is MJ Network. And I am waiting for the author of Through the Door. Ah, there he is, finally. Press 1 to speak with someone about possibly extending or reinstating your car's warranty. Again, press 1 to speak with a warranty specialist. Press 2 to be removed and put on our do not call list. Hello? David? Hello? Hello? Is this... Hello? Oh, this is great. He just logged out. 929-833-6767. 929-833-6734. How do I do this now? I have to do this. I'll have to call him. 929. I don't know what that was. 833 Six seven three four. No, six seven six seven three four. Dial. Thank you for calling Auto Warranty Services. To opt out from our calling list, please press one. This doesn't make sense. Hello. We have not received a valid response. Please try again. I have no idea what this is going on here. This is crazy. They're not letting me call you. There's something wrong with this. I can't get through to him. This is ridiculous. Apple warranty services. That's what that is. Apple has nothing to do. To opt out of from our calling list, please press when I call them. It That's said it's dropped. It said it's blocked? Call it dropped. It's dropped. Yeah. I she's dropped off. How do I do it then? She's I don't know. dropped off. What? Caller has dropped. I did. I did. I did. I Can called them call again. I called them. Thank you for calling Auto Warranty Services. To opt out from our calling list, please press 1. Hello? Hello? David? Hello? We have not received a valid response. Please try again. We have not received a valid response. Please try again. I don't know. Could you email him and have him call you? I couldn't I don't even know his email.
finally. Go on. Um, hello? Hello, can you hear me? I, I don't know what that was. It was like I got Apple warranty services before. <laughs> I have no well, idea yeah, who that was. Well, you me now. Uh, finally, I was getting worried. I just emailed David. I said, like, what happened to David? <laughs> it's like I've been sitting here like, oh, my God. And then I keep calling, and then they keep telling me I have the wrong number. So, okay, <laughs> we're ready. This was We're ready. Yes, I'm ready. This is interesting because I'm a music major, and oh, this good. is my field. So why did you decide to share the story with everybody? <laughs> well, first of all, Fran, thanks for reading the book. I can tell from your questions that you really looked at it, and uh, oh, I yeah. really appreciate it. Uh, why did I... Why did I say to share my story? Well, it's, uh, it all started a couple years ago, maybe two, maybe a little more. Uh, going through my, at this stage of my life, going through my notes that I was getting ready to throw out that nobody wants to see anymore. And I realized that there's uh, just loads of uh, helpful hints and, uh, and explanations and things about how to play the horn and how to play musically mm. and how, uh, how, how to succeed at what I did. And um, so I, I, just, I just decided I'd write an article about these helpful hints, which uh, blossomed or uh, germed into this whole book. It, it, everything's connected, of course, and uh, the, the wonderful opportunities that I had in my life that came to me, you know, serendipity, why they did, why I was chosen. Mm to have these wonderful opportunities. The doors just open, like I say. And uh, I was standing there ready to, to go from a, a, a college senior to the major leagues in the Chicago Symphony, mm. which is a major shock, you know. And, yeah. uh, and learning, learning how to cope with that, really. Basically, the pressures and, and uh, the excitement of being there. <laughs> I can imagine. I was concert violinist in the in my in the, my school, and just that alone yeah. was like yeah, just to keep just to be able to be first violin, but the French horn <laughs> yeah. is hard, and the trumpet. Oh, is I even can't harder. imagine. I can't imagine playing the violin. It seems like an impossible thing. The, the horn seemed easy to me compared to what I look around and see people playing the piano, and playing I the love violin. The piano. And, yeah, it's amazing. I, I couldn't blow into a horn, no, but I, I loved playing the violin, and I loved the piano. Oh, music is like, forget it. So explain the prelude and how this sets the tone for the rest of the book. That was interesting. <laughs> well, <laughs> this dream happened maybe uh, se 70 years ago. Yeah. Mm. A, a very, very vivid dream. It's in the, the stories in the book of me... I can still I can still practically visualize the whole thing of going to the airport and this is this is the days before we had ramps and inside facilities they rolled a ladder up to the airplane and people came down from it and uh, to meet my soul who I really was I mean this is the just of the whole book who am I and why am I here uh, I was going to meet that and. I waited as the people came out of the airplane, and first uh, some really uh, angelic-like children came out of the airplane, and then older people, and on and on, and people kept coming, and, and it wasn't right. I didn't meet it. I couldn't see. I thought I'd recognize instantly who it was, my soul, and uh, all of a sudden this unworldly leg came around the corner of the airplane. And I saw that, and it just scared the devil out of me. And I mm. turned around and left. And that dream sort of is the beginning point of the quest to, to really be able to look at that person that's inside me that that uh, is really who I am and why I'm here. 
And the book's basically about that, and with a lot of other stuff thrown in, like the adventures in uh, playing <laughs> playing in orchestras and all the pranks mm. and and the adventures the adventures of a lifetime. Really, it's uh, <laughs> it turned out. I must say, it turned out pretty good. I, I didn't think I, you know, I'm not an author, and I that's the last thing I expect to be doing at this stage of my life. <laughs> Just writing a book, but we self-published and it came out and people really like it and it's selling. And uh, oh, that's good. So I'm, really, I'm really glad I did. Well, I'm glad you did too because I get so many. I can't even tell you how many books I reviewed. Thousands, really, thousands. Too many. And you know, you review how many murder mysteries or how many memoirs oh, yeah. and go like put put me. I'm reading one that somebody, a publicist specifically, said, we need you to read this. And the book is staring at me right now, and it's like insomnia, seriously. It's not that it's poorly <laughs> written. It's just like I, root canal is more interesting than this particular one, but I'll, I'll make it sound good. What can I say? So <laughs> yeah. this, well, this, this was interesting. What, what journeys, I, I, your journey starts with the shower hose. How did this create your musical journey? That was hilarious. <laughs> well, I realized, like, oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> well, anytime you vibrate a tube or a string or anything, there's the thing called the harmonic series that's involved with that, and it's a magic. It's a magical thing. You can take a 12-foot piece of tubing and and buzz into one end, vibrate one end, and you can make make it play about 16 or more different notes, starting with the lowest one and an octave higher the next one, and then a, a fifth higher the next one, and a fourth higher the next one, and on and on and on until you get to half steps and even quarter tones clear up there. Uh, and this to me was magic. I t- to sit in the bathtub and play on this hose and see that there are some, all these possibilities was the beginning of uh, the magic of playing the horn. And it, uh, it, it's surrounded my whole life, really, basically. That is really good. So tell us about the High D Club and the audition mania. That must have been captive, too. Well, basically, I think that's the beginning of my career as a practical joker. Me, and, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love and, practical and jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, and and relieving stress by uh, uh, making fun of status quo. Basically, that's it. Well, the Heidi Club <laughs> was what high school high school boys do, uh, competing, and uh, I'm better than you kind of thing. You know, uh, the Heidi uh-huh. Club was a a note that Handel wrote in his Oratorio Judas Maccabeus, and and it's uh, it's a very high note. We, it's one step above what we're expected to be able to play. And so as high school boys, we're challenging the uh, status quo. We're we're attempting to play at the level that is even unexpected of by professional players at that time. Now everybody can do that. But back then, it was a big deal to to play that note. So you joined the club. If you could play it, you, you were in the club and you felt like you were above everybody else. <laughs> I guess that's it. That's amazing. Now, why did you transfer to Northwestern? And what orchestra did you what orchestra did you play with for the audition in in Chicago? I would be scared well, to know, audition in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I transferred to Northwestern to, to study with Philip Farkas, a famous horn player mm. and teacher who was the principal horn there in, in the Chicago Symphony. Mm. And it's a very revered uh, sort of master of, of the French horn. It taught many years after he retired at Indiana University. Many, many students who loved him. He was a very fascinating mm. man. Uh, but... Uh, the, the idea of auditioning in Chicago, I, the only orchestra I played in in Chicago 
the only other orchestra I played in Chicago were the school orchestra, of course, and an and uh, orchestra that went around to play in schools. Herbert Zipper was the conductor. But basically, the only uh, Chicago Symphony was basically what I did in Chicago. But I looked at your question here, and it seems like it should say, which orchestra did you play with and audition for after Chicago? Oh, that's, and that's yeah. a story. That's, that's my show for you. <laughs> that's my show for you. If you want to hear that, do you, would you like to hear that part of it? Yeah, I think I, uh, I, I, yeah, I do. But actually, that's my spell check. When I go to correct things, it just does it its own thing. What can I say? Uh, okay. Uh, well, okay, I'll tell you quickly if I can. Uh, mm-hmm. After I left Chicago, there were two possibilities, Pittsburgh and Detroit. And I auditioned. I both remember. those jobs were open. And I auditioned, and I got both jobs, and I decided where to go. I went to Detroit, and I was there for nine years for school and then this job in San Francisco came up, back home to California, and I really wanted to. I really wanted that job. I really wanted to move back, and so uh, mm. I hadn't auditioned in actually ten years. So I decided to take the Boston audition, which was also open. So Boston and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. These these opportunities only come up once, many many years. You know, like. Every 20, 30 years, what, these wonderful jobs come up, and, and I was in the middle of, of when these wonderful jobs came up. And so I auditioned, and I was uh, uh, tied with somebody in Boston and tied with somebody in San Francisco. Mm. And I chose San Francisco, basically. So that's really the gist of the book in that, uh, uh, again, these opportunities presented themselves. The doors opened, mm. and I walked through, and I... Had this really serendipitous, charm, charmed life as as a horn player, and you know, in the back of my mind, I always felt like I don't really deserve this. Why 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 are these opportunities mine? You know, I don't think I'm that good. <laughs> but somehow, uh, I survived in that the musicality that I projected was enough to keep me going. That's amazing. So there were two people that you met. You met Reiner and Farkas. And how did you get the position? That must have been great as assistant conductor. I mean, that that has to be exciting. Oh, not conductor. I was assistant principal horn player. Assistant to this conductor, yes. Assistant to this conductor. Well, assistant to this uh, solo horn player in Chicago Symphony. Yeah. I was his his assistant. And he was my Mm -hmm. teacher. Well... I only studied with him for a couple of months, and after I got there as a senior to Northwestern, and it was uh, we we hit it off, and it was like I was like the son he never had. I, he had only daughters, mm-hmm. and, and I could already play, and so our teaching experience was more like a, a sharing thing. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough. He he was a very smart man, and he came from the uh, intellectual side. And everything for him could be figured out intellectually. And me, I was from the emotional side, and, and everything I did was emotional. So when we would discuss music, <coughs> excuse me, that I was playing, he would look at every, he would be able to produce every single bit of ink that was on that page, every Every he would uh, ha- he he would be able to project the music from looking at the, the notes. And me, I was the opposite. I would only I would pay that much attention to all the markings, but I would mm. go with my, go with my heart and how I felt. And so we would negotiate between us. And I think mm. he felt that, and he felt I was kind of the other side of him in a way. And he was certainly the other side of me because I wasn't a lucky at all. And the opportunity came, arose because uh, Reiner, was very, very, uh, this was the days before we had union uh, supervision in these events. And a conductor could just go uh, to a city and hire a horse. He could hire anybody he wanted to. There, was no, there were no committees. There was no oversight. He, he would just hire somebody. And uh, he had somebody in the orchestra he didn't like, and he 
he wanted to hire somebody, so he threatened to go to New York and hire a New York horn player to bring back to be Parkinson's assistant. And and Parkinson was definitely afraid of that. He wanted somebody mm. next to him that would support him. And he'd had experience with people coming from New York or elsewhere that that weren't that enamored with him or would 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 make his job harder than easier. And and I guess somehow he felt that being young and and uh, uh, malleable, I I could uh, help him in that job. And so. He recommended me to Reiner, and, and Reiner decided to audition me, and I went up and had this famous audition, where, uh, which is probably the next thing you're going to ask is, how did that happen? The audition was a key to my whole career, actually, because mm. what happened was I took out my horn, and he asked me to play, this piece by Strauss, it starts with a very low note. And uh, mm. the note didn't come out. I, I wasn't really great at, at that low, very low register. The, the note didn't speak at all. And I automatically and immediately assumed that the audition was over because I'd missed the first note. Uh, knowing that uh, Reiner really didn't tolerate any sort of uh, weakness or uh, mistakes or anything. He was a real perfectionist kind of person. And I'd heard mm. all these stories about how he could fire people right on stage during a rehearsal. And uh, so I just assumed automatically that uh, I'd failed the audition. So I just relaxed. And, uh, and strangely enough, he went over to his... Uh, Credenza cabinet and, and took out a, a brand new copy of the book my teacher had just written called The Art of French Rampoint. And he looked through that book and he sort of growled at me. He says, your teacher says you must loosen the armbrochure for the low notes, which is totally ridiculous. I knew how to play the low notes. Anyway, uh, he said, try it again. So I, I had a second chance, and the low note came up. But what changed was my attitude of uh, anxiety about the mm. audition. I didn't care anymore because I'd already failed. And so I was able to play the audition, and, and it, it went great. It, afterwards, I thought, well, <laughs> you know, he probably figures that uh, this kid's okay, you know, he takes directions. I told him what to do, and he did it. <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it set up my whole s uh, s scenario for my whole uh, career as a horn player, this thing that I call creative not caring, where you have to be in the present. You can't worry about what you just did or what you're just going to do. You have to be right there with what you're doing. And if you do that, if you're there and present at the moment, you have a chance of feeling emotion of the music because the, mm -hmm. uh, your mind dictates how you feel emotionally when you're playing. And so I found this to be the key uh, of survival all the way through 40 years of doing this. Well, I understand that because... You know, the violin speaks to me when I played it. Yeah. You could feel the emotion, but the piano was my favorite. I love playing the piano. Yeah. And when I majored in music, I didn't you know, be able to transpose into every key. I was great until they asked me to sing. That's another horror <laughs> story. Yeah, I can't sing. I can, tell you, I can tell you if you're off key. I can tell you if your instrument's off key. A perfect pitch. I can tell you um, that I couldn't sing, and I can tell you that... I had sight singing, and the poor professor looked at me like, you poor thing. Um, <laughs> if, they play, if they played all the notes without the accompaniment, I was okay. If they asked me to sing something, whatever, it was really pathetic. I just told everybody to hold their ears. And then <laughs> when you graduate, you have to do a program in front of a lot of people. I won't even tell you the program that I concocted. They're still laughing. And, and the professor said that it was so good, he gave me another B plus not to take the next class. That's how great it was, seriously. It was that Well, Fran, do you, still, do you still play a little? 
I play the piano. I I can't play the violin. I can't explain why. There's a reason why I can't put it on my face anymore. But I was hoping my dad bought me a piano. I have a piano inside, and the people in this building don't like when people play anything, whatever. So if I'm going to play, I do it when nobody's around, yeah. I I love the the piano. Is has always been, you know, whenever I had to take a test, and my mother said, if you don't get an A, you're going to have to write it over, for real, I would practice and just sit at the piano and practice. And my sister would sing. She had a, she, I miss her. She had the most magnificent voice. And then we had a bird that used to sing with us while he was alive, yeah. So uh, the piano, my mother never had to say to me, practice, or, you know, your piano teacher's coming. It was like, uh, it was like so relaxing to play the piano, yeah. So this, this must have been exciting. Arthur Friedler, how did you feel playing under his direction? That must have been totally awesome. Well, when I got to Chicago at Northwestern, uh, the first thing I did was get a student ticket and go hear the Chicago Symphony because that's what I wanted to do, not the mm. Chicago Symphony, but I wanted to play in a symphony orchestra. And I was overwhelmed by the whole thing. I mean, the, the playing was so incredible, and, and the conductor standing there controlling the whole thing, uh, it seemed like he was hardly doing anything, effortless. Uh, and, you know, we've talked. I've talked about this a lot in my life, about conductors. That's a, a fascinating subject, but this, this conductor was the one who gave responsibility and didn't take responsibility. He, he made the orchestra play like chamber music. If things weren't going well, he'd just quit conducting, and then you'd have to <laughs> figure out how to get through it. I've seen, I saw him do it many times. Uh, he he was like a, a general. He wasn't a first sergeant ordering people around and waving his arms around, but he was just in control at another level. And it's terribly frightening and yet overwhelming and, and yet uh, very, very powerful. And the slight, his slightest move would mean something. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and so to to actually come down and, and be sitting on stage with this uh, with this person was uh, I can't say how frightening it was in one sense, mm. and how exhilarating, and how incredible it was. What I found that uh, when I actually well, I, I listen, listen to these concerts and think in my head that I'll never be able to play at that level. But then suddenly I found myself on the stage playing at that level and being surrounded by that that amount of confidence and, and well, actually fear. I mean, everybody there was afraid uh, if they made a mistake or stuck out in any way, he would just stop and ferret out the weakness. And so there was always perfection. The rehearsals were were never a problem because they were always like concerts. They were perfect. And uh, so being surrounded by that, you realize how easy it is when you're surrounded everywhere by that kind of uh, confidence and that kind of that level of playing. That's amazing. Now, you went to play the Ozawa era. You played in Japan? No, I never played. Oh, oh, with Ozawa. Oh, yeah. Ozawa, no, yeah. I was, I was in the San Francisco Symphony then, and and Ozawa went to, he was, you know, he, do, he wasn't in San Francisco very long. He was up in Toronto, and then he came to San Francisco, and then he went to Boston. He was there for many, many years. But, uh, when he came to San Francisco, it was a, a big thing to take a Japanese tour because here was a, 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 a Japanese who was in charge of a major symphony orchestra. And, and the Japanese people really liked him. Mm. They really admired him. So our tour in Japan was very successful because of Ozawa. So how did you create... There were many different timelines... And which conductors and orchestras did you include in all of them? That was amazing because there were different timelines and different times that you that, that you did, according to the book, different years. Oh, uh, well, uh, five years 
in Chicago between 58 and 63, and then Detroit 63 to 72, and then San Francisco 72 to 98. So San Francisco was 25 years. That was the major party. But I always thought I'd stay in Detroit. I love Detroit, and it was a fun orchestra, and we had lots of friends, and our our kids were we were a lot of us the same age people, and it was a, a very uh, homogeneous group. Uh, and I always thought I'd stay there, but I was only there nine years because I got to move back to California and. You know, I married the farmer's daughter, and we have this mm. wonderful property that's on the river. It's about 200 miles oh, nice. of, uh, south, south of San Francisco, and uh, that was a big part of the retirement, getting to move back to this yeah. uh, relatives and old friends and in, in this wonderful piece of property that overlooks the river. I have family in San Francisco, believe it or not. And every time my cousin puts pictures on uh, Facebook, I go like, oh, that's so beautiful. It's gorgeous. You're having too much fun. And it, it's beautiful, except for the earthquakes <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But it's beautiful. I, I know. Well, it's been almost and it's, and it's horrific years. hurricane. <laughs> it's, yeah, oh, awful. It's been 23 years since I, we, we moved away from there, and everybody says that cities change so much with the homeless and, you know, the problems they have. But yeah, I know. It's horrible. We, we were there during the during, – we got there just after Hyde Ashbury, the, the hippies thing, and we were there during a great time in the city. So how did you feel? This must have been exciting, too. How did you feel touring in, of all places, Russia? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know yeah, how many well, people uh, want to go to Russia. <laughs> well, the music people really loved us in Russia, but, you know, the, the conditions were so austere and and, and difficult. And, uh, mm. uh, you know, uh when you travel, it's it's about what you can eat and, and the, how you the place you can stay in, even more than touring and and seeing the sights. And anyway, it was it was hard in Russia, but we did connect with some of the Russian orchestra players, and that was fun because there was a lot of vodka involved. Well, this book is in front of me, by the way. I keep everything. And then I know I have a few people that want to read it, and I go, that's why you have Amazon. Don't look at me. Yeah. Some, I, don't give, I, I give away most of the books after I, review, after I interview the author, but you know, when it's something that is close to home, like music and stuff like that, or too bad, that's, that's tough. I can't uh-huh. keep this one. So what are the different well, types many- of horns which you played? I mean, I was in the orchestra, and we had a guy, uh, one of my friends played the French horn, and I used to look at him and marvel, like, how do you play that thing? And he was not great, but he wasn't bad. So how do you, what kind of types of horns did you play, and which one was your favorite type of French horn? I know there are different kinds. Well, yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, you see, it, I read the book. It, it changed. <laughs> It changes as your career progresses and as you change in your approach to playing, you know. And I was never much of a, uh, of a, of a, what would you call it, a tool guy, you know, a guy who's keeps changing. My teacher in Chicago, Vargas, was, you know, the mouthpiece, the, the, the very beginning of the horn is very critical and it's designed just a thousandth or two thousandths of an inch when it changes, completely changes the character of the mouthpiece of the of the ease of playing and so on and and my teacher always had four or five of those on his music stand in front of him and he'd plug them in different ones and he'd say how's this one how's this one and I always thought that I wouldn't do that I always thought that I'd stick with one thing well later on in my life I started changing but uh, you know it, it it changes you you uh but people always said that I sound exactly the same no matter what instrument I played, what brand mm. of the instrument I played. But well, for a long time I had a, a, 
a former student of mine who was a horn maker, and I played his instruments. They were wonderful instruments. Well, before I forget, I want to forget, nothing like starting September with a number one New York Times author. <laughs> this has got lucky. Um, Brian Freeman took over Robert Ludlum when he died. He took over the Jason Bourne series, and Bourne Treachery is being featured on Wednesday on MJ Network. On the 13th, the author of Redemption. On the 14th, New York Times author Deb Hines, A Plague Among Us. And the next one is really, I'm honored. Uh, Nancy Allen writes with James Patterson, and she wrote two books that I have to review her for both of them, um, The Power of Attorney and Jailhouse Lawyer. And on the 23rd, I have a panel show. I don't know if you do panels. I have so much fun doing this. We're talking about how to write the middle of a book without putting the reviewer to sleep. That should be interesting. <laughs> with three New York, four New York Times authors. And on the 27th, psychotherapist, I love him, Dennis Palumbo, we're going to talk about his new book, Panic Attacks. And on October 7th, we're going to actually do a show on panic attacks. And that's just some of what's coming up in September. And then October, we'll start with um, D.P. Lyle, who writes for Criminal Minds and Law and Order. So this is exciting. I have fun. So you talked about the Eduardo Duarte period. What is humanness in performance? I'm sorry, I missed that. Say it again, friend. What is humanness in performance? You have a chapter on that. Oh yes, humanness. Humanness well, in performance. Uh, it's 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 the incredible uh, variation, and it's if a computer reads reads the plays music. Mm. Uh, it's perfect, but there's, there, there are no subtleties involved. The humanness is the human touch, being able to uh, do things that computers can't do. Mm. I call it musicality, but it's, it's really, uh, you know, in piano music, you can hear one pianist play something and then hear the next pianist, and it's like a whole different thing because there, there's so many subtleties going on and changes in dynamic and in uh, uh, phrasing and, and et cetera. That's humanness. And, uh, and I'm, I'm addicted to it. I, I hear, uh, I hear plays, I listen to the radio, I hear orchestras mm. doing it. You know, orchestras are, are, are amazing, amazing things. I guess people don't really realize how incredible it is to have a hundred people on stage doing one thing at a level like that. And I think that's why people go to concerts, to, to actually experience the power of uh, that kind of humanness happening at that level. That's so amazing. Oh, I love it. So tell us about the Alpine Symphony and who conducted and how this impacted your life and career. Oh, uh, getting well, down to the wire here. The end, <laughs> okay, yeah. Toward the end of the career, we had our conductor was Herbert Blumstead, who I mm. don't think we appreciated quite enough when he was with us. He's still conducting. He's 94. It's a wonderful, wonderful man. Wow. And he and he played. He recorded. He recorded. He, he was able. They were able to let him record all the pieces that would be my favorite pieces. All all the. Uh, um, Bruckner's and the Strauss and uh, uh, Carl Nilsson symphonies, uh, wonderful pieces. And so my favorites then would be where where I could really do what I do is Ein Heldenleben by Strauss. And there's a very famous horn solo at the very end of that when the hero is dying and he's melancholy and he's. Uh, uh, thinking over his life, and there's a so mm. we recorded that. It's a wonderful recording on London Records, and then the Bruckner Fourth, which is also a horn, uh, French horn piece that I'm very proud of. Mm. But I did make a, a record for Summit Records, which was called Orchestra Excerpts, and it's a teaching record where I play all the famous horn solos in the literature, those that are asked during an audition. Uh, 
And that sold a lot of copies. You know, when 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 I talk to people, uh, students that have that have that have that record, that CD, and have listened mm. to it many many times and tried to figure out how to play these solos, when they hear my voice in person for the first time, it freaks them out because they've heard me for hours on this uh, CD. It's a very interesting thing. You know, you know, it's I, funny because you said you should say that because I try to find something so I can listen to your music, but I couldn't find it. So I like to listen <laughs> to the music before. Yeah, I couldn't listen. I couldn't find any. I don't know why. I think I found well, I one, sure just I, one. I wish I would have made a recording of Mozart horn concertos because I, I felt that I was my it, forte. Yeah. I did. I played a concerto right before I retired with the orchestra and uh, it was sort of a going away event and it was very meaningful but you know if if you've got a minute more let me tell you a story I have time uh, okay um, after I retired in 98 mm. uh, I, I since I lived 200 miles away a part of my contract in retirement was that if they needed somebody extra and, and mm. lots of times orchestras do they have five or six horn players, but sometimes the part calls for eight or nine, so they have to hire a couple extra people. And part of my contract was that they would offer me the, the, the job if uh, if they needed somebody extra. And I wasn't tempted to do it very often, just 200 miles away and leaving this whole thing, but uh, it would be, it, it's always fun to go up and see, uh, see your old friends and hang out backstage and tell your jokes and do all your stuff. Anyway, uh, I was offered uh, the concert Mahler Six opening the season uh, in uh, two, in uh, 2001. I guess. Anyway, so I decided to go up and, and, and uh, see my friends and, and play for that week. And uh, usually, uh, uh, the week involves four four rehearsals and four concerts. We had the first rehearsal, and then on Tuesday morning, I was driving up to the miles to see to play the second rehearsal, and I stopped at uh, stopped for coffee halfway, and there was a TV playing in the coffee shop, and it was 9/11. The planes were coming into 9/11. Oh God! So I drove a little, yeah. So I drove a little further, and I got a phone call on my cell phone that everything's canceled, the bridges are closed, the concerts are mm. canceled, people, the, nothing's moving in the, in the Bay Area. So I turned around and came home, and a couple of days later they decided to go ahead and open the season. They got up their nerve to have one rehearsal and, and have this concert. And so we did. We went up and had the rehearsal, and the concert was... Uh, uh, Amazing, amazing concert because people in the hall were afraid. I think they, you know, everybody's afraid that somebody's going to blow up something. And it yeah, took a lot imagine. of nerve to come out to the concert. And the orchestra was under rehearsed for this piece, but we knew the piece, but we hadn't played it for a while. And so the tension was incredible. I, I was in I school. And the, oh, I was in the nurse's office when I watched them. Blowing, but going to the second tower. We thought oh, we were watching amazing. something else, and it was the most horrific experience. I watched them do of the course. first tower, then when I actually see, saw them do it live to the second tower, I was like, "What is that?" Really? I thought it was like a commercial. It was, it was like so <laughs> frightening. And in order to yeah. be in school, I mean, we had to we had to explain it to the kids. It was it was like forget it. So, question. All right. So, if you if you retired, oh, so, let me, so what what Fran, what would finish, you say the most Fran. important experience you were that that will always Wait. stick with you? What is the most important experience that you decided to do that you would share with listeners, our listeners? Well, let me finish the other story. It's it's a quick okay. ending. We Michael Tilson Thomas, the conductor, decided to play. We always played the Star Spangled Banner to open up the series. Of concerts, mm. and he decided to play it sotto voce, muted strings, very softly. 
and and everybody was teared up. They played the Star Spangled Banner very softly in the audience, and the tension was unbelievable. And they finished the Star Spangled Banner, and somebody way up in the top of the gallery hollered out, play ball. And it was like popping a balloon. It completely deflated this incredible uh, or this spirit that was happening there in the hall. And and at that point, I realized how special, how special playing this kind of music at this level is and how vulnerable we are to a a silly thing like that 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 could ruin the spirit of the whole concert. And we sort of went through the motions after that. And and we felt terrible that our concert had been ruined by this one guy who said, play ball. And the next week when we came into the rehearsal, there was a note on the board from this woman that said she was so sorry that she had taken her father to the concert and he had Alzheimer's and he thought he was at the ball game. I know too much about that. I know much too much about that. I spent 10 years at home with Alzheimer's. So, one, one last part. Why did you include the appendix and why? Because there's a lot of information in there. Did you hear that? No. I, I couldn't hear you. Something happened to the phone, friend. Could you say the it again? Appen- what did you include the appendix in the, in the book? Oh, the appendix. Well, the appendix yeah. is really... Uh, that's the... That's the reason the whole book is there. That's the reason the book got started. Uh, the appendix really is uh, all the, all the uh, ideas I had about playing human and, uh, and playing musically and playing easy and uh, creative not caring and playing in the moment and uh, helpful hints, really, to somebody who wants to do what I did to, to make their life easier and and make their playing better. You know, the things that got me through 40 years of doing what I did. That's the appendix. And also... That is, uh, I know, it's interesting. Describing the harmonic series and just intonation and those technical things that normal people who read the book wouldn't really be interested in. I, I, originally, I thought I'd put it in the book, but then I realized mm. the best thing to do would be to get it outside the book so people would have to struggle through it if they weren't interested in that kind of thing. Well, are you going to write another one? I asked yes. that question at the end. You are going to write another one. Yes. Okay, what are you going to write about this time? Well, it's finished already, and uh, we're looking for a publisher. It's called Resonant Reflections, and it's really the spiritual side of my whole life. Where, oh, where nice. I started in, yeah, it's all the things I didn't put in the first book. And that's it for me, Fran. I mean, I've said everything I ever wanted to say with this second book, Paul. <laughs> well, are you going to do, gonna do another wanna... thing with David? Are you going to um, ask him to uh, be a publicist? He's amazing. Yes, he, he, uh, he's working on it now. He's looking for oh, a publisher. Good. This book is currently only about 75 pages and he says we have well, to have at least 100 <laughs> to uh, get it published. So I'm trying to figure out what else I can say, but I figure I've already said it all, and I don't, coming up with another 25 pages is going to be pretty difficult. Well, well I don't, don't want to feel just... bad. Don't feel bad, because my <laughs> book is out. It's called Population Zero, A World Without People. Uh-huh. It's 76 pages. The problem oh, is, is I, did you... get, I did get um independent publishing company to publish it, and it was a little costly. Um, to get your book published, if you want it published, self-publish, Robin at Fidelity Publishing will publish it. She's amazing. She does a fantastic job. She is really great, and it's not expensive. This costs me a ton, and I'm on a tour with Partners in Crime, and I'm getting penalized because it's 76 pages. The book is really oh. just I, I created um, a lot of worlds, nine worlds, that no one in their right mind would want to live in, a world without sun, a world with darkness, a world with decay, a world made of glass, a world with mist, a world that's just hot with desert. And I come back and experience my world. No one wants to live in my world. Um, (laughs) I'm getting penalized by getting uh, three and four stars because it's 76 pages, even though it says what it's supposed to say. 
So I don't uh-huh. really care. It's okay. So where can everyone <laughs> learn about you and your music and listen to your music? That's my final question. Oh, well, I always, like I said, I, I think the recordings of the San Francisco Symphony, uh, the Blumstead era, you'll hear me for mm-hmm. sure. Those are great recordings. Uh, and then I have the uh, orchestra excerpt mm. CD on, on Summit Records. But uh, really, it, it's it's a great sorrow to me that I never really made a, a commercial recording. I have mm. lots and lots of CDs of performances that I did, but those aren't available to anybody. And I, I, I kind of thought it would be nice if I talk to San Francisco Symphony and see if they'd release some of those performances I did, especially... That would be Benjamin nice. Bruce. Yeah, but I, it's been so long already, time flies. I mean, you know, 22 years, I'm sort of, who is that guy? <laughs> it has been, so... Uh, well, I wish I knew you had it. I would have told you to play one on the show. What can I say? But I can tell you now <laughs> yeah. that if David Johnson is doing your book, I'm guaranteed he's going yeah. to tell me I have to review it. I know him. He doesn't let me go. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, the minute I get the thing to review the book, he says, when can you interview the author? So I said to him, you better tell me fast because I'm almost booked to the end of December right now. Seriously. Uh-huh. Triple, but I can't believe it. It's like crazy with this pandemic. But before we end, let me say this. Um, to the people in Afghanistan, my heart goes out to you. I pray to God that they that they save you and that nothing else happens to you. And to those people in Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, I hope Ida leaves and never comes back, and I hope there's not any more damage. Unfortunately, uh, there was a death this morning, and that broke my heart. I just truly hope that everybody stays safe and that nothing else happens to those people and that there are no more hurricanes. But, David, thank you so much. This has been really great. And one more thing that I say at the end of every show, there's a pandemic out there. Be careful. Wear a mask when you go outside and be safe. David, be safe. Everybody have a great day. It's beautiful outside. And bye. Thank you, friend. Thank you very much. I didn't get that publisher.